Hi, and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Art Scoping is a podcast featuring innovative leaders from the cultural world, ranging from designers to curators to today, America's leading expert in art law. Stephen Urice is professor of law at the University of Miami. He is the Dean's Distinguished Scholar and Arts Track Director for Miami Law's LLM in Entertainment, Arts, and Sports Law. Stephen is a dizzyingly accomplished scholar and legal expert who received his BA in English from Tufts University, followed by not one, not two, but three graduate degrees at Harvard University, a Master of Theological Studies in the Old Testament, a PhD in Art History, or as it was called, Fine Arts, and then a JD from Harvard Law School. During his doctoral program, based at Harvard's Fogg Art Museum, he worked extensively as a field archaeologist in Cyprus, Tunisia, and Jordan. Following law school, he joined the Trusts and Estates Department at Milbank, Tweed, Hadley, and McCloy in New York, then moving to Los Angeles, where he practiced at Errell and Manila, after which he eventually became a museum director, running, among other institutions, Philadelphia's Rosenbach Museum and Library. He would ultimately join the faculty of the University of Miami School of Law in 2006. And I could go on, but he needs to get a word in edgewise. Welcome, Stephen. Hello, Max, and thank you very much for inviting me to participate in art scoping. So excited to have you here because we're at a moment where everything seems very vague and uncertain, and you're in the middle of the most certain world, the world of law. Before we get there, I'm guessing that your master's degree in the Old Testament at Harvard gives you a lot of insight into the context of our dreadful plague. How are you doing personally? Personally, I'm doing fine. Thank you. I'm very fortunate to be in Miami where the weather is good. My apartment fortunately has a very large balcony overlooking Biscayne Bay and I'm doing well. Good. You know, it's interesting as far as my studies in Old Testament, I can't really see any parallels between COVID-19 and locust cords or frogs. But <laughs> I will say that having seen a remarkable article by Jill Lepore in The New Yorker on plague literature, I have been working through the reading list she suggested, starting with a short story by Edgar Allan Poe, and then moving on to a remarkable book called The Last Man. Mary Shelley wrote it eight years after she wrote Frankenstein. And curiously enough, she placed it in the end of the 21st century, mm. which time a plague wipes out all but the last man standing, hence the title of the book. So I've actually been enjoying it. I'm working through Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, which he wrote 60 years after the plague hit London in 1665. And I must say the parallels are stunning. Social distancing being practiced in the 17th century by locking people in their homes, yeah. a little different than what we're doing, but we do refer to it as a lockdown. His analysis of the economic disaster is completely parallel to what we're seeing today. So I must say, I'm keeping myself entertained when I'm not working, thanks to that article in The New Yorker. Your form of entertainment is typically more erudite than my own. I'm watching Harry Bosch on Amazon Prime, so I 
<laughs> I'm in escapism and you are a full on in an analytical mode and historical review. No, it's just that I don't know how to turn on my television. That's oh, right. Yeah, that, that is, that's what the problem with three graduate degrees from Harvard. You're right, left a bit right. uncertain in the practical world. You teach courses in elements of the law, trusts and estates, art law, museum law, cultural property law, and seminars in art, museum, and cultural property law, and the law and policy of artists endowed foundations. So I wanted to start with, in light of the pandemic, what do you think the primary issues the art world is facing in the legal arena now? Are people, for example, going to be less litigious or more litigious? I'd like to think that people might be less litigious, but I think individuals who are litigious are so genetically <laughs> remain so. So, um, Like our president. Uh, yes, exactly. Right. right. And nothing will stop him from filing suit after suit. I can't see the pandemic uh, helping reduce the load on our overloaded courts. As to the primary art law issues, I think it's very hard to know what those will be. But I think some are reasonably foreseeable, including bankruptcies of galleries and the impact that that will have on the art market generally. I think that gallery bankruptcies will affect individual collectors who may have works on consignment at those dealers and galleries. And I can foresee difficulties with the international art fairs for all the reasons we know, uh, limited travel, uncertainty about being together in crowds. I think a smaller number of successful commercial galleries will have an impact which will reflect itself in various kinds of contract suits. My thinking really is that the growth industry for the short run is going to be creditors' rights and bankruptcy. There's a convergence, the art market tanking in the inability to move product and what you're describing of bankruptcies. So it's not an ideal moment to be filing suit to recover losses when the value of your inventory isn't what it was. Is that fair to say? Precisely. And for creditors who have claims against, let's say, a gallery and end up collecting it through the proceeds from the sale of the gallery inventory, you're absolutely correct. It is not a good time, I don't believe, to be selling. This is not the kind of market into which, absent a really extraordinary piece, that one would choose to test. And what sort of protection do these commercial galleries start with? Well, there's a great deal of litigation going on now, as I'm sure you know about what are known as force majeure provisions in contracts. These are provisions that release parties from obligations in the event of certain occurrences, acts of God. And there's a great deal of litigation that has been instituted as to whether a pandemic is within a force majeure clause if it is not explicitly stated. So it'll be quite interesting to see how our different courts, whether they're state courts or federal courts handling these suits, handle those matters. An ignorant question about the distinction between an act of God and force majeure. Where do they overlap and part ways? An act of God is an element in force majeure, but sometimes force majeure clauses will include other specific issues floods, hurricanes, tornadoes. Frogs. Frogs, yes. Water turning uh, into blood. But 
it really depends upon how the force majeure clause was prepared. And I think one outcome of the force majeure litigation will be to refocus lawyers who use standard forms into reminding themselves to look at that language every time it's used and determine whether the boilerplate is appropriate. Right. We touched on frogs and blood and God knows what, which takes us in a way to the ancient world. It takes us also to cultural heritage law. And you lecture internationally on cultural heritage law and policy. What do you think the biggest tugs of war facing American museums and private collectors are in this arena going forward? The United States has been a leader in efforts to protect the cultural heritage of other nations. We effectively rewrote what is now the text of the 1970 UNESCO Convention, which is the primary convention on the movement of cultural property across international boundaries, and enacted legislation to give it teeth as a matter of law and policy in the United States. So we have a lot to be proud of in terms of assisting other countries. Where the difficulties arise is that at times U.S. prosecutors have taken our domestic law and applied it to cultural property cases when it simply is inappropriate to do so. So the United States is still trying to figure out how best to coordinate its international treaty obligations and its own domestic laws in a coordinated, comprehensive way. Cultural property claims of this kind, what proportion would you guess are settled out of court versus end up in a trial? You know, we don't know. What makes it impossible to have accurate empirical data is this. If a claim remains limited to correspondence and communications between the parties, or really between the party's attorneys, and if there is no formal complaint filed with a court, when the parties settle, there is no public record that the dispute occurred. So unless one of the parties leaks to the media that there is a claim, and sometimes that is a litigation strategy, there is no public record of it. So it's very, very hard to know how many claims are made that are eventually settled without either party having to go to court. Another area of the law that's a bit murky has to do with artworks looted by the Nazis from 1933 to 1945, and claims in that world continue apace. But of course, now the children of Holocaust survivors are passing on. Do you foresee changes in how those disputes are going to be addressed in the future? I do. And I think it reflects what we are going to see in many cultural property, cultural heritage claims. The law is a terrible way to address many of these concerns. In our adversarial legal system, there must be a winner, there must be a loser. I think we are seeing a greater willingness of claimants and possessors to seek alternative dispute resolution rather than going directly to court. And in fact, as you know, starting in 2019, there is a new court of arbitration for art headquartered in The Hague, which began to accept cases to be mediated or arbitrated 
rather than to be litigated. And so that provides a different approach to outright litigation. And I think we will see much greater attention being paid to these alternative forms of resolving disputes. You've been a longstanding member of the faculty and planning committee of the American Law Institute's course of study, Legal Issues in Museum Administration. And I'm curious, we talked about artworks and the degree to which an attempt to monetize them might be in the offing. Do you see anything new about the response to museum layoffs of staff in this age of social media where there is more organized protest by exited staff members and loose organizations? Certainly, there is a great deal of information that is being made available that was not available previously in labor disputes. When law students come to me and say, I want a career in museum law, or I want a career in art law, and you sit down with them, particularly if they're interested in museum law, and you point out that museum law rarely involves a matter of a complex loan agreement with a foreign museum and your home institution, and it's more likely to involve a slip and fall case or a labor case. In the past, labor disputes at museums have been noticed by the press, but social media is giving the workers opportunities to present their case in the court of public opinion. I don't know what that means, but I know that there is more information being shared about what salaries are, what working hours are, what working conditions are like, and so on. In an odd way, we are gaining access to more empirical information on how museums actually function than we would have had in the past. Interest on the part of the public in how the arts are governed, managed, organized, will ratchet up curiosity about this topic. So it's something to watch. Now, you watch so much because you're the co-author of the standard art law casebook, Merriman, Elson, and Urice, Law, Ethics, and the Visual Arts, which in 2007 had its fifth edition, and you're now revising for the sixth edition, which is pretty much like rewriting the Bible every few years, isn't it? Well, the sixth edition is effectively a complete rewrite of the book. The fifth edition was merely a matter of buffing up the fourth and updating it. But unfortunately, John Merriman died three years ago, and I decided then it was time to bring a new co-author on, Simon Frankel, who is a practitioner. He and his father both are deeply interested in art law, So he has had a long tradition of working in this field. And Simon and I have gone through the book. We are reorganizing it. And effectively, thank you for referring to it as the Bible, but it's a little bit like rewriting the Old Testament. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We are recombining various areas that have been dealt with in different ways. Law, Ethics, and the Visual Arts was first published in 1979. And the remarkable thing about the book is that it is a law school text that was co-authored by a professor of law at Stanford University, John Henry Merriman, who at the time was the leading comparative law scholar in the country, and an art historian, Al Elson. This combination of 
a law text being written together by a law professor and an art history professor yielded a remarkable book and it was the first text that could be used in law school classes in the field of art law. As it went through its first, second, third, fourth editions, a great deal of material was carried forward that John and Al had taught from and enjoyed using. When it went from the fifth to the sixth edition, which is when I came on, Al Elson had died, and John Merriman invited me to work with him on the sixth edition, I pushed to update some of that material, but it was not easy. With the sixth edition, John had already blessed the idea before he died that it represent a complete reworking. And did he memorialize that in a memo we can all read, Stephen? Or... <laughs> uh, no, simply some notes from a lunch meeting okay. that at Stanford. <laughs> and uh, the one of the greatest changes is an expansion, vast expansion of the artist's rights chapter, which is now really three chapters, one having to do with artists' copyrights, another having to do with artists' resale royalty rights, and the third, the emerging area in the United States, although it is well known in civil law jurisdictions, of artists' moral rights. That has become important since the enactment in 1990 of the Visual Artists' Rights Act, which granted a limited form of moral rights to U.S. visual artists. Well, how many pages is this thing gonna run? Our publisher, we're changing publishers, Cambridge University Press has limited us to the equivalent of 1,200 pages, oh, damn. Okay. already at 1,500, so right. I'm not quite sure how that will resolve itself. I think <laughs> it down. Understood. If pages are still relevant by the time it comes out. Well, that's a whole other very important issue, particularly <laughs> given the cost of law school texts. Speaking of the interests of artists, Many years ago, it became commonplace in our country for artists, as their career neared its twilight, to donate remaining inventory to create foundations. And you've been a pioneer in thinking about the implications of this. You served on the study committee of the Aspen Institute in creating a two-volume report titled The Artist as Philanthropist, Strengthening the Next Generation of Artist-Endowed Foundations. And you assisted for years in disseminating the findings and effectively training these many, many hundreds of foundations, of which maybe a hundred are leading ones, in how to operate most effectively. Can you give us an update on how that world is evolving? Yes, I'd be happy to. It's been a remarkable voyage for me. It began in 2007 with a call from Christine Vincent, who is the director of the project, the Artist Endowed Foundations Initiative, which is a program under the philanthropic arm of the Aspen Institute. And at first, it was meant to be a very short two-year study with a few meetings. And it's now heading into its 14th year. And Christine has really been the engine driving this remarkable, deep-level research into what artist-endowed foundations are, what they do, what they have, and what public benefit they confer. The field is growing and it's growing quickly. The most recent update, AEFI published in 2018, it reflects numbers that were available from the 2015 tax returns that all foundations file and all of which are public information. And at that point, 
the project identified more than 400 active artist-endowed foundations in the United States with total assets of nearly $8 billion. Two-thirds of that value are works of art that are held by these foundations. Their charitable impact is enormous. The total distribution in grants in 2015 was something close to $200 million. I think it was $178 million to be exact. And those grants and gifts and contributions are only a part of what these foundations do. Many of them engage in direct charitable activities, for example, sponsoring exhibitions, running artists' residencies, running research centers, and the like. So the Artist Endowed Foundation field is growing, it's growing rapidly, and it is growing in sophistication thanks to Christine's efforts with this Aspen project. The donations of these Artist Endowed Foundations is growing to be comparable to what the federal agencies give out every year. Uh, that's something I've never thought of before, Max, and you're absolutely correct. That is, it is comparable to the budget of the NEA. And what is that presage down the road for museums and the art market? Foundations tend to do one of three things with an artist's set of works that the foundation has title to. For example, let's take the Warhol Foundation, where Andy Warhol made it very clear that he intended the foundation to sell all of his artwork in order to create an endowment for making grants. And the Warhol Foundation did an admirable job of very carefully over years selling that collection of Warhol's own work plus Warhol's collections. Other foundations don't sell their work, but instead use their work for direct charitable activities. They may contribute some of the works to museums, they may make bargain sales to museums, but they also will use the work that they have to create exhibitions, to create study centers of the work, to promote an understanding of the artist's development and career. So it really depends on what the foundation's mandate is and what the mandate becomes if the trustees of the foundation have flexibility to change it through time. And one big change, Stephen, since the inception of Artist Endowed Foundations is the abandonment of art authentication as a core feature of their activity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. There are two aspects to authentication. Artist Endowed Foundations used to do one-off authentications. An individual would submit paperwork to an authentication board at the foundation, which would either say yay or nay. Now, there were two problems with that. The first is that in and of itself, these one-off confidential authentications is not, in my and many other people's opinion, a charitable activity. There is no public benefit. The benefit is personal to the individual who has sought authentication. The second difficulty is that it creates enormous potential liability for the foundation and we saw that happen, especially at the Warhol Foundation, where disappointed individuals sued the foundation's authentication board, and that entangled the foundation in years of litigation, which itself was very expensive, but also distracting 
it distracted the foundation from its core charitable purposes. The other side of this coin, though, is that artists' foundations can indeed support catalog raisonné, so that they can indirectly authenticate. And the publication of a catalog raisonné effectively is an authentication of a body of work. And a catalog raisonné for our listeners who don't follow it as closely means the most comprehensive possible annotation of works that are attributed to a particular artist. Right. And it becomes the definitive source as to whether a given work is considered a work by the artist or is not. And sometimes these catalog raisonné are comprehensive. Sometimes an artist's work will be broken up into different catalog raisonné, works on paper, works on canvas, sculptures, and so on. Now, the difference here is that a catalog raisonné is widely disseminated, either in published form, hard copy published form, books, or online, meaning that there is a very broad public benefit that is conferred when a foundation undertakes the production of a catalog raisonné. And one has to contrast that with the lack of public benefit when a foundation has an authentication board that provides a confidential yay or nay to a single owner of a work. Understood. But Stephen, museums are forfended from offering expertise that leads to authentication as well to protect themselves from litigation. So where is an art buyer to go? Where are they supposed to go to find out something's authentic? Well, it's difficult. I would say two things. First, what is the role of the Artist Endowed Foundation in authentication? Primarily, it is to make available all of its records, its archives, and its other documentation to any individual who wishes to consult it to try to determine whether a given work is authentic. As far as where to go, the proper place is the marketplace, because it is the marketplace that makes that determination. But of course, scholarly expertise tends to win the day in approving and making known the consensus of opinion. And the market is a little less reliable as an indicator of that, I would. I think that's correct, Max. I think you're absolutely correct. And so it may be that my answer is, well, it's not disingenuous, but it may not be helpful. It's lawyerly. <laughs> so what have I not asked you that we should touch on before closing? There's one thing that is of particular interest to me that I'm turning back to this summer as soon as the book is done, which is the single donor museum, which is unfortunately often described by journalists as the private museum. If a museum in the United States is a tax-exempt charitable entity, there's absolutely nothing private about it. And there has been a resurgence of single donor museums without a good deal of understanding about what they are and what they do. They've always been part of our museum landscape. One simply has to think of the Frick Collection, the Phillips Collection, the Huntington in Pasadena. So these, and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. I mean, these are wonderful landmarks of the American museum community. But the question is, again, are these single donor museums, museums that at least purport to be museums that include only one person or one family's art collection, are they conferring a benefit on the public? 
And if so, what is that benefit and how do we measure it? And is it sufficient to grant these organizations tax exemption for what they're doing? I think that will be an area, certainly it's an area of great interest to me, and I think it will be one that may well continue to attract the attention of legislators. Yes, because the Senate Finance Committee took it up a while back, as you know, and did a fairly light dive into the topic, looking at a set of these single, I'll get used to saying this now, single donor art museums, (laughs) (laughs) and came up empty. In other words, they're really, from their research effort to see if the treasury was being depleted of potential tax revenue. That's correct. Senator Hatch undertook a study in 2015, and it was badly designed, badly done, and really is not the legislative branch that should be doing investigations. It really is the executive branch's job to do that. So it was an oddball all around, and it's one of the reasons why I'm going to go back and revisit this whole topic as soon as I get the book done. Looking forward then to seeing the results of that research of the forthcoming sixth edition of Law, Ethics, and the Visual Arts. And Stephen, thank you so much for making time today. As you can tell, I enjoyed it a lot. I hope you did too. And it was great to catch up a bit on the field that is emerging constantly. Max, it's I who should be thanking you. I had a great time with it. So thank you very much. We've been speaking today with Stephen Urice, Professor of Law at the University of Miami. And until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.